now listening to the penultimate podcast with the jump guy, Tyler Ray, powered by Project Pure Athlete. Jump higher, train smarter. On today's episode of the penultimate podcast, we do Q&A, question and answer. I get a lot of questions in my DMs, in my inbox, in my Facebook on a daily and weekly basis that I thought, you know what, as opposed to just fatiguing my thumbs and typing these all back to you guys. We'll do one big episode here and get through as many of these questions as we can. That being said, I don't have a ton of time, so I'm going to do my best to power through these and give you some feedback. I apologize ahead of time if I if I butcher your name because some of these aren't even names. They have numbers in them, so we'll do our best. Also, just so you know, for listening to the Penultimate Podcast and being a part of this team, you will get 10% off any order you place at projectpureathlete.com slash shop just by entering the code penultimate1. So that is penultimate1, 10% off any of the products we have there. So that's Project Vertical 9-Week Jump Program, the Jump Guide Jump Technique. There is a comprehensive jump analysis if you'd like some of my time. That is an option for you. Go check those out. In the meantime, let's get into episode two of the penultimate podcast with some Q and A. Okay, so question one comes to us from Z underscore Zhao underscore Z. I really don't understand the whole quote midline stability thing that you talk about. Can you explain that? I absolutely can explain that, and I will do my best to explain this without going crazy sciencey at everybody. So when I talk midline, it's effectively another way of uh, referring to the core, but more importantly, the muscles that stabilize the spine. So midline spine runs down the body, and it really controls a lot of the movements in multiple planes of action. So right from sagittal, coronal, transverse, we have a lot of musculature that stabilizes these forces. And with jumping and technique as it relates to jumping, the most important thing is how do we convert speed into vertical lift? How do we apply force to the floor and in return get as much back as possible? So a lot of these muscles serve really as like the communication center between the lower and the upper body. So we need to make sure they are strong. Not only that they're strong, but they're strong in those positions. So that is why we get in positions that we do through our jump and we stabilize in those positions. A lot of the drills involved in the jump guide, a lot of the drills I do with my athletes on a daily and weekly basis are strengthening them in these positions so that when they approach their jump time and time again, they have that requisite stability and strength. So we deal with a lot of these muscles, the transverse abdominis, multifidus. We have the superficial muscles of the abdominals. So we have the abs that play a role, the obliques. It's really the, their ability to create and maintain that intra-abdominal pressure. So you got to almost view it like we're trying to blow up a giant balloon or something really strong around our spine so that when we, again, apply those forces under a great deal of stress and stimulus that we bleed as little power as possible. So we want our midline to not be leaky. And that's why I use terms like leaky and bleed. It's really just that potential energy leaking out of the body. Hope that helps. All right. I spoke almost like a paragraph there without breathing. That is public speaking. No, no. 101. Okay. I am Daniel Pierce asks, are there different techniques for one and two foot jumping? 
I am Daniel Pierce. In short, absolutely, there are different techniques. However, there's a lot of crossover in the fundamental elements and principles of jump techniques. So we do have to create speed. We have to create stability. We have to be able to translate speed into vertical lift through that penultimate stride, through that amortization of power, and conversely, land depending on the application of that jump in a good position on two feet or if you're jumping into the sand like you're a long jumper then landing like a long jumper so the main differences really come down to how much speed depending on what you're using say a one foot jump for if it's one foot jumping as it applies to say basketball dunking a basketball doing a layup then acceleration can be a little bit more so um, than if you were to be using it in, let's say, a format like a volleyball player on the court because we don't want to do a ton of horizontal drifting. You need a, a great deal of stability through those joints that you're using, ankle, knee, and hip, because you are loading unilaterally onto one limb. Our ability to stabilize that becomes very high. So versus two foot where we can spread that amongst a greater surface area, a bigger base. So we have more muscle, we have uh, more contractile potential and stability when we have two limbs versus one. Two foot jumping typically would be a little less speed through takeoff. However, there are some cyborgs on this earth that can utilize a great deal of speed combined with power to jump. One that stands out to me is Jordan Kilgannon, professional dunker. He is like a hybrid of a speed and a power jumper. We have like an incredible amount of horizontal speed created and an incredible amount of power, which is why he soars above the rim so well, getting his chin over the rim and even times more than that. So I competed as a dunker. I was very speed oriented. If you look at my jump, I actually posted a jump on my Project Pure Athlete Instagram recently of one of my jumps because I'm kind of getting back into some training myself. And it's very evident that I carry a great deal of speed, but I have a very, very, very short ground contact time and a very low amount of um, loading through the hips and knees. So I don't have much flexion that occurs in there. So I utilize a lot of that top end hip extension and a great deal of the speed on takeoff. My stationary jump is atrocious. I have a very poor standing vertical, but I add simply one step into my jump and I can increase that by eight to 10 inches, which is pretty wild. That being said, I'm pretty far into my career in terms of jumping. I'm pretty satisfied with where I have been and where I'm at now. And I do my best to you know work that absolute power through lower end ranges of movement. But that being said, I'm very conditioned and to be perfectly honest, don't have a great deal of need or want um, to do much tweaking to my jump mechanics at this point. That being said, you should, you can, and if you need help with that, of course you know, we have the jump guide, which breaks down education-wise our PPA principles of jump techniques. So you can take a look at that. I want to make sure links are everywhere so you guys know where to find everything. Okay, so that's a great question. Is uh, Okay, so number three here is by R.G. Cameron. O is actually a zero. Is jump training a lost cause after a certain age? Great question, dude. And I'm right there with you. So it's like we get to a point where we've jumped for so many years and our aches and pains catch up and our ability to recover lowers and our life responsibilities change. And it feels hopeless sometimes. It feels like, wow, I once was able to do this and now I can't because of A, B, C, and D. My, my tips to you, RG Cameron, are 
volume, 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 volume. Reduce the volume of your training. Just make sure that there's a great deal of intensity for those shorter sessions. Also, recovery needs to play a bigger role. So just spending a little bit more time with body maintenance, proper nutrition, and sleep because it's mitigating those effects of stress in our lives, amping those cortisol levels up, which just make everything such a pain in the ass when you're dealing with stress, right? We get, we have a higher chance of doing things like overeating, our sleep is reduced, and just like day to day, you don't feel as good, which means that your motivation to work out is a little bit less. So I would reduce your volume to keep the stress in your body lower. I would also just fine-tune the frequency of your training. So just taking a look at how often you're training during the week because what you once did is maybe not what best suits your body at this point. But no, it's not a lost cause. It's just you need to tweak a few things. You need to do a little bit uh, different and focus your training differently to accommodate the changes in your life. Number four is this one. Okay, the first half of this this word or this name here is letters. So ESVVI, and then it's Taveras. When should plyometrics be done? Before or after strength? Trying to maximize my vertical jump gains. And this is a question that I get a lot. I'm going to reflect based on the style of training that I do. So I will pair. So plyometrics first and foremost are one of those. One of, the, one of the terminologies that get thrown around where it's like, how do I, I just need to do plyometric training, plyometric training, plyometric training. And it's like, yes, you need to introduce some elements of plyometrics into your routine if you'd like to optimize power output and jump higher. You absolutely need that. That being said, if you do plyometrics every single day, your body just does not have the appropriate amount of time to recover. And then we lose a lot of those neural responses from the body. So we, we dampen our body's ability to really send signals if we're just pounding it into the ground. So I recommend a few times a week playing around with some plyometrics. I like to pair them up um, in a potentiated setting. So I like to do a, a little bit of a strength-based movement prior and to, to hopefully try to excite the muscle a little bit more, get some of that nervous system firing, and then hopefully get a little bit more out of my jump when I pair that with something following my lift. So for instance, it can be something as basic as doing you know, a, a heavier goblet squat followed by some box jumps. It could be some sort of um, you know, rear foot elevated split squat followed by some bounding. I find that with myself and my athletes, I've gotten more result from doing that, um, you know, commonly referred to as PAP training, which is post-activation potentiation. The concept really being that if we, if we task the muscle as a whole in a strength setting, then we utilize more of the fibers required for those muscles during a powerful and explosive output. Okay, so we, we get a little bit more out of the muscle and fine-tune a little bit more of the of the fibers associated with the jump. That's typically how I like to use it. That being said, plyometrics can be done on their own. Um, I like to keep them in low volume. I keep plyometrics regardless of age in low volume, keep the contacts high, uh, you know, intensity, but also with just a very mindful effort. So that's the entire basis to Project Pure Athlete training is really just how do we develop really concrete connections between mind and muscle, those neuromuscular connections. How do we get an athlete tapped into the way they move and hopefully make them a little bit more of an intelligent athlete? Because for me, doing work for the sake of doing work is not as beneficial as getting an athlete in and really tapping them into what they're doing and why they're doing it and having them get that feedback over time. So 
I'm not a big proponent on high volume training. I think that personally, especially especially through developmental um, ages and levels, that that mindful focused effort is a little bit more appropriate than trying to get an athlete in and just cramming as much into any given period of time as possible. There will be a lot of coaches listening to this or that you refer this to that disagree with me. And by all means, everything works. Honestly, just just move. You need stimulus. It'll work. But it's for how long it will work. That really is the question. So this is what works well for me and my athletes. This is how I like to train. So please, this is not the Bible. This is just my humble opinion as a coach and an athlete. The Penultimate Podcast is powered by Project Pure Athlete. Visit projectpureathlete.com and check out the complete line of PPA training and technique products. All products are created by The Jump Guy and have been used and endorsed by coaches and athletes worldwide. Jump higher, train smarter. Number five, Matt Butnari, and then there's a U at the end. Tips from switching from a right-left-right plant to a left-right-left plant. My first question would be, why? Are you looking to switch? Is it a need for your sport? Is it that you want to try something different? Is it you want to have access to both if that's the case and you just want to play around with an additional plant sequence, then what I would recommend is practice. <laughs> so it's like anything else. I take a very um, Tarantino approach to most of the, the jump technique I do, which is we start at the end and we work back. We start with landing and then we work back through takeoff and then we add approach steps in there. So what I'd recommend is just really starting by patterning a lot of these two-step approaches. So for you, if you're switching to a right-left-right to a left-right-left, then what we're going to do is really work on that right-left, so that penultimate block sequence from right to left foot. Just getting used to pushing through that stride and then blocking sharply, stacking those shoulders, hips, and ankles so that you can leave the ground sufficient amount of time, and then also optimize and utilize the power associated to your approach. So starting with that right-left um, patterning. I did just recently put um, how to how to pattern your penultimate stride video on my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Project Pure Athlete, I believe. I apologize. I don't know the um, URL off by heart, but if you search Project Pure Athlete, you, you will find it. Make sure you subscribe. Boom, shameless plug. But left, right, left from a right, left, right just comes down to patterning. And then it'll be strengthening because a lot of times what happens is when you take off two feet, that penultimate stride also becomes your dominant stride, so it gets a heavy amount of loading. So that means that we're going to be switching up the leg that's getting the heavy amount of loading, which could mean that we need to do a little bit more unilateral work on that side to appropriate that um, speed and translate into power. So I would do that. All right, number six. I'm going to get a couple more in here, guys. This is fun. Number six, Cami Dunks. What do you think the peak human potential for a vertical is? Who is the highest jumper you have seen? Ooh, this is a fun question. What do I think the peak human, you know, I'd be speculating at this point because I used to think it was in the 40s and now I've clearly seen athletes jump into the 50s off full approach. And I mean, some flirting with that 55-inch barrier. I think that as we continue to evolve as a species, now that, that being said, I don't mean evolve as a species physically. Like I think, you know, biologically we've evolved quite far and I'm not sure where the where the ceiling for that is, but I think that we have access to training methodologies and equipment and things that have have allowed us to tap into additional potential. 
I don't know, maybe 60 inches. I, to be perfectly honest, man, I'm, I'm just speculating. That being said, I'd love to see how high an athlete can jump. I'm of that school of thought that, so <laughs> I remember this back from my university days. I did a um, presentation in one of my sport ethics classes on uh, PEDs and the Olympics and whether people should be allowed to take performance-enhancing drugs and how that looks. And I really came down to, my thought was, why not create just a different um, division of the Olympics, like the Super Olympics, where you're just like, you know what, if you want to do drugs and take whatever you can to optimize your potential, go for it. But you're going to be competing against other people that do the same thing. And we're going to see where the level is. I want to see someone shot put a shot put like 100 meters. Like <laughs> I want to see someone high jump three meters. I want, I think that'd be amazing. Throw a javelin out of a stadium. You know, I think that if you're willing to sacrifice your body and your organs to see how far you want to push your body, and that's really important to you, then who am I to say, don't do it? That being said, if you want to compete against people in a controlled environment that don't use drugs and you use drugs, you're kind of just an asshole. So we have to find that balance. But I think that, you know, the potential is potentially um, higher than we, we'd ever we ever thought. So I'd love to see someone jump 60 inches. That'd be crazy. On In terms of who is the highest jumper I've ever seen in person, um, there's a handful of names that come to mind. Uh, Myrie Bowden, um, so Remix, um, it was a cra- is a crazy high jumper, and he's my age. That guy, again, he's like a robot, but he puts a lot of hard work in, and it means a lot to him to keep jumping. So I'd say he's up on the top of the list. Justin, Dar- Justin Darlington from Toronto, Just Fly, um, was a sp- very elastic athlete and could jump extraordinarily high from almost a sleeping state. I remember we used to go to dunk contests, and he'd be half asleep, and then they'd call his name, and he'd walk out and do a cartwheel and then a between the legs. It used to piss me off, but the guy's a freak. Uh, Jordan Kilgannon jumps quite high. Porter Mayberry, another. These are a lot of pro dunkers, but some of these dunkers are, in my opinion, some of the higher jumpers that I've ever seen. Just, again, that's what I'm comparing to. I've been in a lot of situations where I've seen high-level high jumpers and long jumpers, and I'm sure some of these guys have insanely high verticals. But for me, those athletes I mentioned – have crazy verts and and, you know even now there's there's new athletes that i've never seen jump in person i'm excited to go down in june to the dunk camp um, in salt lake city i'm going to be doing some lecturing down there and coaching with uh, some of um, aspiring professional dunkers and current pro dunkers on their on jump technique and i'm excited to see them jump in person because for me it's you know i i speak a lot on optimal positions and and principles of technique but some people find ways to jump that is not biomechanically friendly and you can just you can see they jump insanely high so i'm excited to see that the variety of, of leapers down in salt lake city um if that piques your interest guys you can always check out the dunkcamp.com and my boy andy nicholson um is putting that together and i'm super excited to help out and be a part of that so you guys can go check them out all right we're gonna do one more question it is from jonathan h Nguyen or Nguyen, I guess it is, Nguyen. How do you improve elasticity in the tendons such as the Achilles? Cool, cool question. A little bit of tendon integrity work. So the way I do this with my athletes is through a variety of different ways, you know, different types of bounding drills. What we want to do here is create a high level of stimulus to these tendons and improve their integrity so their ability to withstand mechanical loading. Um, 
you can do depth jumps and, and drop jumps, but what you want to be careful of is just like progressive resistance training for your muscle bellies, it's the same as it applies to your tendons. So progressively loading these over time, starting on very low boxes, it only takes one time for you guys to screw up and go from too high of a position because you're watching some Instagram videos of people doing depth jumps off of cars and your Achilles says no thanks and it leaves its home and recoils back up in your leg and that would be the worst case scenario. So I would recommend just getting reps appropriate to your level and then recovering from that. So different bounding drills, different um, drop and depth jump variations are very good. And then really it just comes down to having mature muscle tissue over time. So, you know, I think we, we really do live in a world of instant gratification. And when someone sees someone jump super high, they're like, why can't I jump that high right now? And then not realize that athlete has put in six to eight years additional work than they have. So patience, 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 patience is going to be your guy's best virtue and really help you with that training over time because we want results, but we want sustainable results. Let's remember that. Guys, this is Q&A episode two. This is awesome. I'm going to do another one of these soon. We're going to line up a guest for next week so that we have a different voice on here. I don't mind listening to mine, but I'm sure you guys are sick of it by now. So let's get on with it. Just a reminder, if you're looking to switch up your programming a bit and you want to try some different workouts, you guys can use the code penultimate1 at projectpureathlete.com slash shop on any of the products there. It's been my pleasure more than anything to talk to you guys, to answer your questions. I love and live for this. It really just is about spreading good information and trying to squash the garbage that is filling our Instagram feeds. Guys, we'll talk to you soon. This has been Tyler Ray, the Jump Guy. Thanks for listening to the Penultimate Podcast.